I was thankful for the chance, and Pastor Rodney asked me about a week and a half ago if I could, would be able to speak tonight, and I'm always grateful for that chance. So, um, especially considering the, the subject that he spoke on this morning, uh, something that, you know, when he told me which psalm it was, um, my heart inst- and mind instantly went to the hymn, Glorious Things of the Earth Spoken, which I'm sure is familiar enough to most of you to have be familiar with that. And so what I thought I wanted to do tonight is just to kind of dwell a little bit more on what he was talking about and to reflect on that and uh, just to share some things that have been on my mind that are somewhat relevant to, to what he was saying this morning. Well, hopefully pretty relevant, but somewhat relevant. But anyway, so I don't know how you, uh, what you thought of this morning. Um, it's a bit different than some of the sermons we, we hear that Pastor Joe preaches uh, as he's going carefully verse by verse, which is a very essential thing. But this is more of a top-level, through-the-Bible journey, uh, linking Old and New Testaments together. So I don't know how, that, how you, 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 that you felt during the sermon, but you know, maybe you're encouraged, maybe you're excited, um, maybe you're confused. Maybe there's a lot of, a lot of pieces to follow, a, a line to follow through the Scriptures. Maybe it made you mentally tired. Maybe it's like, uh, I'm trying to track everything he's saying there. Some of this stuff is new. I haven't heard this before. Um, maybe you're a little frustrated, like, this sounds important, but does this, help, how does, this, does this really help me, like, on a daily basis? So I don't know. I don't know how, how that, the sermon came across to you this morning. Uh, I was thrilled by it. I was excited by it, and I wish that he could have kept going. Um, to, to, I, just, I just really, really loved and appreciated it. Because I, I think sometimes those high-level views of Scripture and the narrative that God's telling really help us to plug these little details in. Uh, in our, in our, the class that I'm teaching on Sunday mornings, we're studying union with Christ or being in Christ and just how a really revolutionary, definitive view of the Christian life that that is, that you can plug a lot of these other doctrines into and it just brings sudden clarity to so many pieces that are kind of like loose strands. And so I really appreciated that this morning, uh, that God has a purpose f- for the ages. And um, so for those who were encouraged and excited, I hope this evening to be able to bring some more encouragement and for those who may have been confused, and maybe you could have been excited and confused, uh, that's, that's fine. You know, we, we can keep going over these things until that clarity comes. Um, or maybe even you're a bit frustrated or even a little, your brain was tired by 12.05. You know, I, wherever you were, I, I want to help us think through these things um, uh, carefully and well, and, and hopefully to, to be stronger as a result of this. So a couple of thoughts that I've had, um, and it's, it's how, one of them is it's how we can be products of our age and unconsciously affected by our time in history. Um, you know, no matter where Christians find themselves, they are living in a culture. We're living in a real world. And it's sometimes very hard for us to realize the effect that culture and the thinking of the age has on us. I mean, we're very clear. We, we know that certain things like homosexuality, the Bible says that's wrong um, about abortion. We have clarity on that. But there's other things I think, think sometimes that we're not so keen on or not so, not so aware of the effect that the world's thinking, even not just so much in recent history, but throughout a period of centuries, how the thought processes have affected the way we think as Christians. And so I think that that can affect how we look at Scripture and how we see God and how we even see the world He's made. And so I want to spend a little bit of time tonight just dwelling on on some of these things. Um, we We can look back at people in the past and we can think of them as being a little bit lesser than us. Certainly, our society likes to put aside the past because they were barba- they were they were backwards thinking people. We look at we hear reports of like this is this summer when we talked about the biographies. We talked about some of the medical care that Christians had in the past, or anybody had in the past, and like think oh 
giving people mercury or bleeding people with leeches or with razor blades or whatever, like this is just crazy. And so we can look at that and we can think like, well, they were so backwards, we shouldn't listen to anything they have to say. Uh, but I think that's a very bad mistake because just because they may not have been as advanced scientifically or medically doesn't mean that maybe they were more advanced than us. Maybe we've actually lost some things that they had the ability and the insights on that we've lost. And, and so we should never assume that just because someone's backwards in one area or not as advanced in one area that that applies to everything they ever said and did. And if we do that, then we're falling into the same mistake that our culture's falling into, um, which is like people from the past, you know, they were racist or they were this or they were that, so we can't listen to anything that they said because, you know, we're, we are the generation, which if you follow that logic, 100 years from now, they're going to be saying the same thing about us. How backwards could they be in 2023? So just the general category of being aware that sometimes our culture and our, our trends can affect how we think. But I would say that we are made in God's image, and so we share a lot with the people of the past. And I believe we have something vital to learn from them. We live in an age that's been affected by the Enlightenment. We live in a very scientific, rational age. We live in an age of bullet points of, get me, just give me the facts. What do I need to do to fix this? What do I need to do to, to, to know how to do something? But we rarely take the time to reflect on the reality of things, the substance of things. One of my favorite Quotes, uh, is, and my kids have heard this, they know I like this quote, um, is from C.S. Lewis in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. When Eustace there arrives in Narnia, and he starts talking about stars. And Eustace says, in our world, a star is a huge ball of flaming gas. But then he's corrected and, and, and told, he said, even in your world, my son, that is not what a star is, it's only what a star is made out of. And we think because we're in a scientific age that we grasp the deep meaning of things when all we're doing is really like we can, we can dissect it on, on a chemical level or a physical level. And, and we think that because we understand the science that we understand the reality. And I would say that's not the case at all. And some people in the past had a better grasp at the realities even if they didn't have the science to go with it. We were recently reading, just this week we were reading a book or some journal articles from a guy who was a a columnist up in Duluth, Minnesota, back in the 1980s, and he, was a na- he, would, he would spend his time in nature, and he would come and he would just write newspaper articles about it. And we were reading this one called Northern Lights, and I think he captures a little bit of this. Um, so he was going up there, he was up laying outside at night, and he saw about the Northern Lights, the Aurora Borealis, when the sky just turns green and blue and all these crazy colors, they're just like, wow, this is amazing. But he says, when the lights are cooking like that, it's impossible to watch them long while standing up. You have to lie down on a back porch, a boat dock, or a grassy pasture. That's the only way you can see the whole show. And that's what I was doing when they began to whirl and swirl and snake across the sky. There a horizontal lightning bolt, now a fluorescent serpent, then a rippling from one horizon to the other. He said, don't bog me down with talk of protons and ions. This is mystical, magical stuff. This guy's not a Christian, but he's like, there's something here that's more than just science. I can handle neutrons and electrons and positives and negatives in the laboratory. I can deal with them in the context of a nuclear power plant. But the sky, the whole sky lit up like this? Forget the facts. I'd rather dream. I'm mushing my way down the Dawson Trail. I'm building the fire that will save my life. I'm alone on a lonely land, missing the one I love. And you can see that there's a mystery there. He's like, don't just, don't, don't starve me with the science because I know there's something more profound there than just the scientific facts. Then he goes on towards the end and he says, I'll admit that every time I see the lights, I wonder all over again what makes them happen. But that's where I leave it. Some things are better with the wonder left in them. 
And I think that by trying to just always solve the facts or saying like, that's a mystery, I can't understand it, so I'm just going to dismiss it, that we have a, there's a tendency for us to do that with, some, with, with spiritual and scriptural things. So I want to ask you a question. Have you ever driven on Route 24? You know, what road that number, what road ever sat in traffic on Route 24, right? Do you know Route 24 has a name, right? What's the name of Route 24? What's, it, what's its road name? Anybody know? Yeah, it's Mount Zion Road, at least in certain stretches. Uh, I know that because we have a customer right there, right above uh, Market Street. I don't, know where it, I don't know where it starts becoming Mount Zion Road, but it becomes, I'm, I know number 10 Mar, uh, Mar, Mar, Mount Zion Road is right at Market Street and, and heading north up to Route 30. So it's called Mount Zion Road. Now, why is it called Mount Zion Road? I think it's called Mount Zion Road because our ancestors knew the Bible better than we do. Because they named their roads and their churches and everything else. They named it Mount Zion Road. And I know down here in Redline, you have a Zion Church Road. Why is there a Zion Church Road? Because Zion meant something to our ancestors, to our spiritual ancestors, that we've, we've kind of lost. And I think Pastor Rodney helped us regain some of that this morning. Or, you know, the, the road that all the truckers drive on, if you've ever been down um, Prayer Mission, Cool Creek Road early in the morning when all the, the trash trucks from New Jersey are waiting there to haul their trash up, up, uh, up Cool Creek Road, but then you turn on Mount Pisgah Road. Why is that Mount Pisgah Road? That's the, that's the mountain that, no, that Moses stood on to view the promised land. You know, we tend to just like, well, those are just road names. But like, no, these are, these are pointers. These are markers to something profound. And they remind us that people in the past knew something that we've, I think we've let slip. And now why is it Mount Zion Road? I, if I'd had the time and I've done this before and I think probably in God's providence, I didn't have time. I would have spent hours trying to figure out how did that road specifically get Mount Zion in it. It could have been a road, there was a, there was a Mount Zion church, or maybe they were going from Market Street up to East Prospect Road 124 and climbing that long hill up there, and they felt like they were marching to Zion. I don't know specifically why that road is called Mount Zion Road, but I just want to remind the fact that there are, all around us, there are reminders that people knew something that I think we've lost. We don't tend to think of the church as Zion. We don't tend to think, as he said this morning, that we are, that the Jerusalem above is our mother. That sounds too Catholic for me. I can't really say that. But the Bible, Paul didn't think it was too Catholic. Paul said that was the way it was. And so I think that it does us some good to really stop and dwell on why does the Bible talk this way? Our age is one of pragmatism, instant fixes, bullet points, and sound bites. It's not one of reading or thinking or storytelling or poetry. And since the Enlightenment, science has been king. Who needs God? We can fix everything. Mysteries, just give us more funding and we'll find the science answer to everything. And that's the way our world works. And that's the way I think that we as Christians can sometimes start to think. We like Paul because he mostly makes sense. Even Peter said there's some things in Paul that are hard to understand. But we like Paul because he mostly makes sense and we can follow instructions. Don't go to bed angry. Uh, love your wife. Don't let bad speech come out of your mouth. And we, we can track with a lot of those things. But we tend to avoid large sections of the Old Testament because they don't make immediate sense to us. Poetry, visions, archaic, obscure stories. I don't get that. That's not for me. I'm not a poetry kind of guy, so I'm just going to push that to the side. And we dismiss what we don't understand rather than saying, how can I learn to speak the language so that I can understand what God was saying to me in these passages? Or sometimes we'll even joke about the funny names in the Old Testament, which I guess a little bit is okay, but I can really, it can really shape how we think about the Old Testament. I don't think that's a good long-term practice to maintain. Remember, these are people who are, either in he- who are either in heaven or in hell right now. And these are wicked nations who were the, who were the, the Taliban of their day. And, you know, 
we can read these stories, like we can read Zechariah 9, and we can say, like, well, it's just a bunch of city names. But like, or we can stop and we can look these things up on a map to realize who was being talked about here, to really make sense of things. I just said, I do weird things. Um, I was curious. So I flipped through my Bible here just to see how much of the Bible, not, not actually sitting there counting words, but how much of the Bible is divided up into different sections. So in my Bible, Paul is 63 pages. In my Bible, Psalms is 80 pages. So the whole book of Psalms is longer than all the writings of Paul put together. There's a, there's a weight value to the book of Psalms, just in the matter of, of uh, paper. The New Testament of my Bible is 248 pages. Isaiah to Malachi is 246. So you basically have a whole New Testament amount of content between Isaiah and Malachi. God's given us an entire, if you want to divide it up that way, he's given us an entire other testament to read. But we tend to stay away from the prophets because they're hard and they don't make sense. And we don't get into visions and uh, that's, that was for Israel. That's not so much for us. But as we learned this morning, that is for us. And as Paul said, these are the scriptures, as the New Testament scriptures, they look back, and the only scriptures they had were the Old Testament. Do we really need a New Testament-length section of poems and visions? Well, God evidently thinks so. The New Testament is only 20 to 30% of the Bible. So as you stay away from the Old Testament, as you find yourself maybe neglecting it because it's a little hard, that's 70% of the Bible that you're not spending much time in. And I'm not pointing fingers. I don't know what your Bible reading practices are. Hopefully, they're better than the average Christian in America. But I'm just saying that I think all of us have a tendency to avoid things that aren't easy to understand. And in doing so, we are drifting into the pattern of our age. So what do we do with that? Uh, do we say, that's just not for me, I'm not into poetry, I don't see how obscure Old Testament stories help me in here now. Let me read something from Paul Washer. If you ever listen to Paul Washer, you know, he doesn't have any opinions or thoughts on anything, right? Um, you know, he, I, anytime I'm feeling myself stale as a Christian or needing encouragement, I go to him because I never walk away listening to one of his sermons without feeling encouraged or convicted. And there's just something about the way he speaks. But I thought this quote that he had in an hour and 45 minute sermon on abiding in Christ, I thought this was relevant and I think it applies to us today. He talks about how we live uh, in a culture where people say people can't pay attention for five minutes anymore so we have to give them little sound bites with regard to Christianity. You know, we've got to, we have to like meet the people where they are and just uh, adapt the, the way we do church or the way we do any kind of teaching to people have short attention spans, so we have to like meet them where they are. And, and initially that might be true, but what he's saying is don't stop there. He said, we're the first group of Christians who believe the Bible, the first group in history that no longer believe that our culture is to conform itself to the book. We are now trying to conform Christianity to the culture. I say if our culture has become too dumb to read for half an hour, that in the church we do not give in to that, but we start teaching people how to think, how to read, how to meditate, to turn off televisions, to turn off vain conversations, and to get back into the book. Then he goes on to talk about Western culture and how people talk about Western culture, various things like this. He said, let me share with you something about Western culture, which is applies to the Americas and Western Europe. He said, prior to the advent of Christianity, Western culture meant that we were a bunch of tribal people living in Northern Europe, running around naked, painting ourselves blue, and eating one another. That is what we would be like today if Christianity had not come to Northern Europe. That is, what, what, that is Western culture. So what changed Western culture? Why did Western culture start producing classical music, Shakespeare, 
universities and all these other things. What changed Western culture? The advent of Christianity. Because of Christianity, we stopped worshiping twigs and streams and crickets and hatchets and horns. We came to understand the living God, and we came to understand creation in light of that living God. Our culture began to change. The very height of literature and art and music and everything in Europe owes itself to the advent of Christianity, coming in and changing a group of blue-painted barbarians. That's what Christianity did. And he goes on to say that, yes, today we've rejected, God, we've rejected the God of Christianity, and we're becoming today again cannibalistic barbarians. Yes, we can do things like computers and technology. We're fabulous in IT, but we're becoming immoral beasts. And the point what I'm trying to make is this. You want a quick fix in your Christianity. The quick fix is this. Spend your life renewing your mind in the Word of God. Cling to the Word of God as though your very life depends on it, because, sir, I can assure you that it does. And I think it gets back to the point of, I really struggle with poetry. I struggle with visions. I struggle with interpreting the Old Testament. And so what, we, what are we going to do? Are we going to become like the, yeah, I, don't, I can't take more than five minutes, so I'm not going to do more than five minutes. I, we can say, like, I don't get the Old Testament, so I'm just not really going to do the Old Testament. I'm not really going to fight my way through. Or what are we, how are we going to approach this lack, this deficiency in ourselves where we're being influenced by the culture? So no, what do we do? What do we do when we find ourselves struggling to grasp some of the things like we heard this morning? Do we say, that's hard, I'd rather just have a three-point, you know, give me three things to do this week? And that's not what we do. Otherwise, we're going back into this, this mindset that, that Washer's talking about where we, just, we, we adapt ourselves to what's natural and easy. No, we learn to figure out how to think like the Jewish people did because God was writing for the Jewish people. So much of the Bible is story and poetry and vision. So that if we spend most of our time in the New Testament, we aren't eating a very balanced diet and we're not getting the whole picture. So that is some, something of where I want us to go. So God gave us stories. God gave us stories. Much of the Bible is narrative story or it's poetry and it's visions. You know, in the book of Hebrews, the people were being tempted to go back to the Old Covenant. Why were they tempted to go back to the Old Covenant? Partly because it was persecution, but partly because the Old Covenant gave them physical things to look to and to hold on to. There were physical sacrifices. There was a temple. There were priests. And it was hard for them to grasp these spiritual realities that Christ was a priest in heaven that they couldn't see, couldn't touch him, they couldn't talk to him directly. There was no sacrifice that they could go to. There was word there were sacraments, there were baptism in the Lord's Supper. But generally speaking, the new covenant was not one primarily of physical objects. And that's why they, they said, well, at least I could feel like I'm worshiping God when I'm in a temple and there's sacrifices. And I would suggest to you that this is, that the message of the Old Testament should be to us almost enough to tempt us to go back. We should see enough truth and enough substance in the Old Testament way of looking at the world that we should almost be tempted to go back to it because that's what the people who did get the Old Testament, they were tempted to go back to that. But our tendency sometimes is to dismiss it as unnecessary, to minimize it or to just skip it. But to show them a better way, the writer of Hebrews time and again goes back to the old things. He doesn't dismiss the old things, but he shows them how those old things were types and shadows of the real things. This is very clear when it comes to the sacrifices and the priesthood that he draws these, especially chapter 9. He said, you know, these, these things the, that you're so physical that you want to hold on to, these are shadows of the heavenly. God says, Moses, come up on the mountain. I'm going to give you a pattern of the heavenly temple, and you're going to build a model of that on earth, and that is what you're going to build. build. 
Now, I'm not saying that these stories are not historical in the Old Testament. They are 100% historical. These are real people who lived and died, who sinned and were forgiven. But Paul tells us that these stories were given to us to learn from. If you want to look at that, that's 1 Corinthians 10, 10 and 11, where Paul is drawing pictures of New Testament realities by pointing back to Moses being baptized in the Red Sea, the people being baptized with Moses in the Red Sea, and eating manna, and eating these, 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 Im- these, um, these symbols. They were given to us to learn from. These Old Testament physical realities were given to us to learn from. But they weren't just given as morality lessons. They were given as physical examples of spiritual realities. You know, God, God knows that we have trouble grasping unseen truth. What does it mean to be united to Christ? That's something I can't see. It's something I can't touch. It's something I can't feel. I can wonder at it, but I can't completely understand it. So what God says is, like, he says this, you, you're, you're struggling to grasp union with Christ? Let me tell you. So he gives us what he's doing. He gives us Ephesians 5, and he says, there's a husband and a wife relationship. And he goes on through 15 or 20 verses of chapter 5 of Ephesians, and he said, this is a great mystery, but actually I'm not talking about marriage. I'm talking about Christ and the church. And so from that we learn that as profound as human marriage is, that's a shadow. Christ and the church is a reality. But God gives us something physical so that we can grasp the spiritual. And if we deny the physical, if we, we say like the New Testament's, you know, we, we can point to John 4, and Jesus, and, and Jesus says, you know, you're not going to worship me on this temple or this, this mountain or that mountain because you have to worship God in spirit and in truth. That we somehow suddenly dis, dis, dismiss the whole physical realm of creation and think the New Testament's all about just spiritual things. But that's not the case at all. The New Testament is building on the Old Testament, and all these images and these stories and these symbols and these pictures in the Old Testament were given to us so that we could grasp and have physical, tangible pictures in our mind of these New Testament realities. Think about how many times in the Old Testament, or in the New Testament, the New, the New Testament draws on the Old Testament. Pastor Roddy mentioned this morning from Galatians 4, about Sarah and Hagar, about Sinai and Zion. Or Paul, just a moment ago, I spoke of how Paul people said that the Old Testament people were baptized into Moses in the Red Sea. You know, when I read, the, when I read if I'm just reading from Exodus, I'm not seeing baptism here. I'm not seeing pictures of people being joined together with Moses in the Red Sea. But that's what Paul said was actually happening there. They were being joined together through a, you know, you, you, there's, you get walls of water on both sides and you're passing through and you have that sense of baptism, that picture of baptism there. And so the New Testament's helping us to understand what was going on back then, but if you don't know what the Old Testament says, you're not going to be able to grasp these, do, these deeper truths. Peter even says that Noah was saved by water as he floated on top of the ark, in the ark on top of the water. Hebrews draws in Melchizedek. Would we even pay attention to who Melchizedek was if, if, he, if, if the writer of Hebrews hadn't talked about him? I don't think we would have. He's some obscure figure in the Old Testament, and yet the writer of Hebrews gives the whole chapter to him because he said, in him we see a picture of Christ. And I wish, he said, you're too dull. If you weren't so dull, I'd keep going and tell you more about Melchizedek, which is one of my frustrating verses in the Bible. It's like, why couldn't you just keep going on? They might have been dull, but I'm not dull. Tell me more about Melchizedek. But he stops there. But what he does there is he says, it's not just Melchizedek. It's not just Hagar and Sarah. It's not just Sinai and Zion. All through the Old Testament, there are pictures, there are stories, there are poetry, there's visions. All these things are given to us to help us grasp these spiritual realities of the New Testament. And I would suggest that not just the sacrifices, but the whole Old Testament was a foreshadowing. That by looking back at the physical realities that were themselves shadows, we have solid things 
with which to apprehend the realities that we are in Christ and also to picture what is coming. And one of those pictures, as we learned this morning, is Zion, the city of Jerusalem. Our spiritual ancestors knew that, and they leaned into that knowledge of what Zion, the city of Jerusalem, did for their understanding of God and his people and of the city that's coming. And I would say that if we lose the biblical imagery, we get mush or inaccuracy instead. Because what is, our, what is typically our view of heaven? In the sweet by and by, I'll fly away. It's almost a, a somewhere over the rainbow kind of picture. I think that for, much of it, for many of us, that is it. We really struggle to think of a material eternity, a literal physical earth, new earth, that we live on. I think that we, we're fighting against church tradition. We're fighting against a lot of our hymns that don't accurately portray eternity. And I think that vision of a city that is very clear, was laid out this morning, gives us something material and physical and solid to look forward to, something with substance that we can look forward to. At, at home, we've been reading through a book um, by C.S. Lewis called The Great Divorce. Are you, any of you familiar with that book, The Great Divorce? Back in the 1700s, there was a book called The Marriage of Heaven and Hell by a somebody who's not a believer. And it's a book of poetry and some reverse parables and pro, you know, almost like reversing the Bible, some poetry and some po- and poems and figures. Well, C.S. Lewis wrote a book in response to the marriage of heaven and hell called The Great Divorce. And he's saying there's a hard line between heaven and hell. And it's, it's a metaphor. It's a story. It's a wonderful story. I love, I love the story. It sounds bizarre when you first hear the topic, but it really gives us some, some really good things to think about. The overall gist of the story is that C.S. Lewis wakes up. Well, he doesn't wake up. He finds himself standing at a bus stop in what he calls the gray town. And he doesn't know having anything else to do, so he gets on the bus. And suddenly, as he's on the bus, the bus starts to leave the ground and leave and go off into space. And it arrives in this wonderful place with its bright and solid and permanent. And all these people who he's traveling with are kind of griping and grumping and, and, and all these things. The, what he comes to find, to understand, is the gray town is, is a symbolic place for hell or the, the edges of hell. And this, this glorious place that he's arrived in is heaven or the, the outskirts of heaven. Obviously, you can't take a bus from, heaven, from hell to heaven. But what he conveys there is he says the people who get to this heavenly destination, it's wonderful. The grass is so green. The water is so pure. It's so, it's so delicious, and it's just, it just draws them in. But as these people from the gray town, as they arrive there, they get off and, and they're trying to walk in the grass and the grass is soft and the people who live in the heavenly area, they walk through it just fine. But the people who live in the gray town, the grass is so hard, it hurts their feet. And yet the people who live in the heavenly realms have no trouble at all walking in it. And uh, Lewis, who's again, he's in this dream and he tries to walk through the, the water's flowing. So he tries to walk through it and it's like concrete to him. And so what he's trying to picture in this is the absolute that heaven is not less material. It's more material. It's more solid. There's more substance there. There's more permanence there than anything we've ever imagined. And I think that we get that when we're building a city on sapphires, building a city on foundations that we, don't, we aren't familiar with. That what God would have us be encouraged by is that we aren't looking for some nebulous something in the sky. We're looking for something of substance and something that we can, like, I can, get, I can picture a city I can picture Jerusalem on a hill. That helps me grasp 
just a taste of what eternity will be. And I believe that that's, what, that's why that's given to us, because God knows we struggle to really wrestle. Like, spiritual realities are hard to comprehend. And I'm not, to, I'm not here to suggest, and I don't think Pastor Rodney would either, that somehow a city built on sapphires is exactly what we're supposed to picture. It, there's still a little question mark, and we're not here to say that we know exactly what eternity is. But I would suggest that by drawing on these truths of the Old Testament, the solidness, these physical realities, that that's something of what we should be expecting to get to. But if we don't do that, we go back to the sweet by and by, I'll fly away somewhere over the rainbow, kind of a picture of heaven. And for hundreds of years, Christians have been using biblical imagery from the Old Testament to help grasp reality. Songs in the past of heaven in the church were often songs about Zion. We can picture a city with strong walls, a city where a king lives, safety and nearness and provision, health and lasting joy. There are so many of these songs. You, you may have grown up singing, we're marching to Zion. That's not marching up to a place in Palestine. As we would, we're marching to Zion, beautiful, beautiful Zion. We're marching upward to Zion, the beautiful city of God. And those songs can stir our hearts because we can grasp. Yeah, I can know what it's looked like to march up to a literal city, a physical city. I can get that. I can picture that. And all these things were used as pictures for us of the Christian life that is sometimes kind of nebulous and, and hard, to, hard to grasp. And so if you flip through some older hymn books, you'll find wonderful pictures of these heavenly realities. And this kind of gets us back to where we started this morning when I opened up on this, this hymn, The Glorious Things of the Earth Spoken. This is a hymn that was written by John Newton. He wrote it. It first appeared. I'm going to give you some background on him. We're actually going to close our service out this evening by singing this. But he wrote this as part of what he calls the only hymns. And if you look at the back of your handout, you can see this is the sixth printing from about 1790, uh, the back there. This is the hymn, if you were here in our, our bodybuilders earlier this summer, and we talked about winter Christians, about Christians who struggle all through life to grasp God's love and they're standing before God. And William Cooper, John Newton's dear friend, uh, struggled with depression, with suicidal thoughts, with a, a host of discouragements throughout life. And, and Newton knew that po- Co- Cooper was a poet, and he said, William, he said, let's write, let's write some hymns together because that'll be something good for you to fix your mind on. And so this was a ministry of mercy from Newton to collaborate on this poem. Now, sadly, Cooper, his mind kind of went again, and he wasn't able to write a lot of hymns, but there are some that are in here, this book, they were written by Cooper. So in this section, this hymnal, uh, if you look at the, the cover page, there's three sections to the hymnal. One is a group called the Select Hicks of Scripture. So as Newton would read through the Bible, he'd be in, he's like, I see a pattern here, I see a theme here, I want to write a hymn about this. And if you look on the back, what the back is, the back is kind of some homework. I'm not going to get into that in detail. The back is the hymn as it's printed in this hymnal with the footnotes, and these are John Newton's footnotes. So you can see what passages of scriptures he was thinking about when he wrote certain lines. But you'll see at the top, he gave it the title Zion or the city of God. And he was drawing on Isaiah 33 verses 20 and 21. I'll let you look that up later and read that. But John Newton, and you'll see some of these passages. I don't know if any of these were specifically mentioned by Pastor Rodney this morning, but as he said this morning, he didn't have time to get into everything that's said of Zion. But John Newton was doing the same thing that we did this morning. He was drawing on these themes of Zion and the city of God from Old Testament right on through to the New Testament through into the New Jerusalem. And 
this, like I said, this, this hymn comes from that first section, and Newton footnotes it, where his mind is going, what's drawing him there. And so I ask you to bear a little bit, bear with a, the wording a little bit. There are some words there. We don't say the a whole lot anymore. And sometimes some words are flipped around just to fit the, fit the rhyme. But I'd encourage you that if you can get past a little bit of those hiccups with the words and a little bit of hiccups with the word, the word order, just like with many of these hymns, you'll realize that stumbling over a few words or phrasings will be more than repaid as you grasp the substance of what's being said in the hymn. Here he draws on physical Old Testament images and he combines them with promises of a future city and helping us to deal with the present realities that we find ourselves in. So in a minute or two, when we sing this, picture yourself, as we learned this morning, as a resident of this heavenly Zion. Think of how the natural truths help you to grasp what it means to be a part of God's church today. You know, when Paul says in Philippians 3 that our citizenship is in heaven, that's one of those spiritual things that's kind of hard to grasp. I just, like, what's that mean? My citizenship is in heaven. But when I can think, my citizenship is in heaven means that I'm a member of this city. That's a concrete image that I can think of that helps me. Like, that's what it's like to be a member, to be a citizen, to have my citizenship in heaven. And drawing these two pieces together, this Old Testament, New Testament theme and, and spectrum of following the city of Zion through, helps us to grasp what it means to be a member of the, of the heavenly city. As Pastor Rodney was speaking this morning, it really made me think, like, how we can think about what's going on with this heavenly city that, that we're members of. And it made me think that right now, gather, God is gathering the people of Zion. The gospel is going out. People from Ethiopia, people from Iran, people from China, they're all being gathered together into this heavenly people of God, this Zion. So God is gathering here on earth. God's gathering his people. And what is Jesus doing right now? He's gone to prepare a place it's as if he, he, right now he's, he's working on the city up in heaven. And right now he's gathering his people here on earth. And in Revelation 21 and 22, we see that heavenly city coming down to earth, into the new earth. And the people and the city are put together. And this longing, this separation of, I don't feel at home here. Not because I don't belong on earth, but because this earth needs to be renewed before it'll be my home. And eventually that city will come down. It says in Revelation 21, God will dwell with us and we will see his face. And it talks about these wonders. In Revelation 22, we read a little bit of that this morning. This description of there's a throne that John sees in the city. And there's a river flowing out from under the throne. And from out from that river, you know what, that song, Shall We Gather at the River? That's not, you know, standing by the countryside river. That's the river that's being talked about in Revelation 22. Rather than being some kind of like this song they sing on Hollywood films when there's a funeral. I don't know how that one actually made it in there because it sounds sentimental. But it's one of the most profound true, one of the most profound hymns about heaven that's been written. Because the river being talked about there, the beautiful, beautiful river, shall we gather at the river that flows by the throne of God? On the margin of the river, and it just talks about, it's drawn from Revelation 22. So do some homework. Go look that hymn up if you can this evening. But I want to encourage us that um, these old writers knew so much more than we do. Don't think of them as quaint don't let your unfamiliarity with biblical themes keep you away from their writings or their hymns. Don't dismiss these things. I suggest don't let yourself become a blue-painted barbarian. What we did this morning may have felt a bit more academic than a typical Sunday. And there were some nuts and bolts that needed to be covered to grasp what was going on. We had to take time to look at those sections of the Psalms. That's not immediately helpful. It doesn't help me right away. 
But by drawing back a little bit and seeing that big picture, that helps me as I go forward and read the Psalms again. Um, that can feel unspiritual when we're doing that. It can feel academic, but there's a profound usefulness to it in the end. You know, right now I'm, I'm working in, in a different realm, climbing trees for 25 years. I spent most of my life, you know, just doing physical labor. But now I'm sitting at a desk and I'm writing for a marketing company and I'm learning things like how to use a Mac, which is, seems very backwards to me because I spent my whole computer life on Windows. Everything's backwards, it seems, on my Mac. I'm learning things like InDesign, which is very frustrating. It's a design layout program, and I try to click and move this, and it doesn't move the way I want it to move, and it's frustrating. But I know that if I put the hard work in now to learn the Mac operating software, if I put the hard work in to learn how to use InDesign, eventually I'll be able to produce things that I couldn't do if I didn't take time to step back and work on the nuts and bolts. And so, yes, there's times when we have to take time to work on the nuts and bolts, to work on the structure of Psalms, and it doesn't immediately feel helpful or useful. But by, once we get it, just think of where it can take us. And I would encourage us to put that work in. Don't become the person with the five-minute attention span who just says, that's too hard. Just give me something simple. Give me Psalm 23. You know, give me, I, I, I've read Psalm 87 before. It's like, what is going on here? But when you have that context, when Pastor Rodney does all that labor behind the scenes to give us that clarity, like that was worth the trouble, I would say. But do the same thing with the Bible and especially the Old Testament, I would encourage you. This morning, we just scratched the surface of what there is to be said about Zion and the people of God. Um, so it encourages, sometimes we have to look back in order to look forward. And that's what we get from this. Um, because I'd like to close with the hymn, I want to explain this paper here. And I, I did briefly. Um, on the back, I'd encourage you to read through. There's, we'll be singing four of these five verses. But I encourage you to take some time to reflect on this later this evening. Um, or, the, or, or whenever you have a chance to do this. Try to not get in the habit of compartmentalizing things. Where it's like church is over, now I go home, and you know, I pick church up again next week. Put some labor in. I'd encourage you. Maybe you do. But I want to encourage you. Don't let yourself get distracted by your phone the moment the, the, we say amen. Put some work into it. We put, we put work into so many things. Put work into the most important thing that there is. Uh, look some of these references up. Take time to think about, like, why was, why was Newton inspired by these verses to write these lines? And just read over this. You don't have to sing it to yourself. You can if you want to. But take time to soak in, even if it seems a bit obscure at first. I don't think it so much is. We don't sing it much, but I would encourage you to do that. And so I, we're not going to use the back page for the rest of the service, but I wanted, that's why I wanted to explain why that's there. On the front, I have a picture of this garden city, and I think that, who knows? The Bible does describe eternity, New Jerusalem, as being a garden city. We tend to think of it, we see these like bright golden like skyscrapers that are golden, and they're up in the clouds somewhere, and I would suggest this is probably a much more accurate, as best we can think of humanly, much more, much more inviting picture of what the New Jerusalem might look like, even though it seems it is a picture of ancient Babylon, which we know was anything but the New Jerusalem. Um, one last note uh, before we sing, because it'll be somewhat relevant. A note on the tune uh, that we'll be singing to this tune. This was uh, written by Joseph Haydn, whose name some of you may, may recognize. And Joseph Haydn was an Austrian, but he spent some time in England. And he became familiar with God Save the King, which we know is My Country, His of Thee, if, if you're American, you know that tune. But he thought, my country, 
needs a song like this to kind of stir nationalism, to stir dedication to the Emperor Francis. And so he went back and he wrote this tune so that they, the Austrians could have a song that would be similar and serve a similar purpose to God Save the King. It's since become, since 1922, I believe, it's, it's, it's the German national anthem. That tune is today the German national anthem. Um, but I would suggest that's a, probably a, a really good hymn if you want to sing a song about our, the place where we have our citizenship, the place that is our nation, why not use somebody else's national song to kind of convey some of that substance to this? And I think that there's, although it's a patriotic nationalistic flair, it's quite fitting song for our heavenly citizenship. So with that, we will close. But I trust that this has encouraged you a little bit to wade back into the Old Testament. Um, if you get stuck... Talk to another Christian about it. Talk to somebody who studied the Bible a little bit more. They may have the same, they may be just as stuck as you are. Um, the person, people who study the Bible the most still are stuck in some passages. But, but get lost in the mystery. Let that inspire you. Don't just say, I need the facts, I need the bullet points, I need to get back to work tomorrow. Because it's that, it's the beauty, it's the reality that we can't always put our fingers on that makes life so rich, especially life in Christ.